I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ruler Long Reads, the finest long-form cycling features and stories from Ruler magazine. Brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists for life on and off your bike. They've transformed traditional insurance to provide customers with a fairer, collective-driven approach to cycle insurance. Say goodbye to fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. And they have some big news. Lacquer will be running its first-ever crowdfunding campaign and offering equity for the bank. Cyclists have helped Lacquer bring a much better model of insurance to the masses, that's why they want to invite you to join the ride. They're pleased to be able to give Ruler listeners the opportunity to own a part of Lacquer. You can invest in the future of Lacquer from as little as £10 and become a huge part of their collective. To register and to find out more about Lacquer's crowdfunding campaign, head to lacquer.co. Remember, when investing your money is at risk, this announcement was approved by Cedars. No Direction Home by Stephen Green. Read by Emma Wright. In 1973, Joel Tana came from Romania to ride the milk race. He didn't go home again for 22 years. Maybank Holiday, 1973, Plymouth. It's the Lord Mayor's banquet to celebrate the start of the milk race in the city. An incongruous mix of guests are in attendance. Riders, race staff, local dignitary and farmers... Holding court is Bill Squance, full-time race controller with the Milk Marketing Board. Puffing away on a cigarillo, and with his large, square glasses with thick black rims, he has the air of a movie mogul rather than the man responsible for the biggest bike race in Britain. A mystery with a plot as thick as the smoke swirls around the banquet table. The rumour is two of the Romanian riders have disappeared. Their team coach discovered they were missing from their hotel rooms after they did not come down for dinner. Police working on the race immediately work out they're probably trying to defect and quietly pass on word to Special Branch. Other than that, it's anyone's guess where they've gone. None of the remaining members of the Romanian team speaks a word of English and, unsurprisingly, no one else in the room speaks Romanian. A few hours earlier, Joltana Lekesh and Josef Naj were walking back to their hotel after their individual efforts in the pro-rog time trial along Plymouth Hoe seafront. Twenty-year-old Lekesh had not held back. He'd thrown his bike at the line, with aspirations of a top ten finish by the time the race reached Blackpool a fortnight later. Which makes his answer to the question Naj now turned to ask him all the more intriguing. You want to stay? What do we do about the race? Naj clicks his fingers. We leave. 
Yes, okay. Let's go. With no money, or even any idea in which direction to head, they manage to say London to the lorry driver who stops and picks them up. No matter he was actually going in the opposite direction, giving a lift to these two lads in Romania tracksuits would no doubt provide a good yarn down the pub later. For Joltan and Josef, they had embarked on an adventure that would last far longer than a two-week bike race around Britain. A Romanian team had first competed in a milk race a decade earlier. Johan Stoika was the youngest rider in that 1963 squad and recalls the peculiarities of the British event. Given that the traffic was not completely shut off, we had a very hard time getting used to the going. There was also the matter of riding on the left. We had a sidewind and the peloton stretched to the middle of the road. Some of the riders passed the middle, a penalty signalled over and over by a commissaire. Actually, the commissaire shouted so loud and for so long that he couldn't speak any more at one point. A two-minute penalty was handed out to riders at supper, presumably after the commissaire's voice had returned. Arel Shalaru, one of the Romanian riders, smiled as he received his penalty. After the commissaire left, we sat down and figured that we had a bit of a culture shock, says Stoika. We saw on TV glimpses of the renowned British politeness, but we were stunned to actually come into contact with it, as the commissaire was very respectful and kind. Our rider Shalaru eventually said that he smiled due to the softness of the decision the jury took. Only two minutes for the amount he breached the regulation was a piece of cake. Stoika was disappointed to abandon early on with a knee injury, while sitting fifth overall, but he'd completed the longest ever edition of the peace race just two weeks earlier. It had hundreds of kilometres of Parve roads, loads of bitter weather, and it simply was too much for my young body to take that spring. Of the other Romanians in that milk race, Constantin Dimitrescu picked up a few stage wins and finished second overall, with Ludovic Zanoni finishing fourth. Despite two other abandons, they finished fourth in the team classification, a result which didn't affect the internal rivalry. Stoika says, The fact is that the Romanian national team didn't act exactly like a team. Half of us were from the army's sport club, Stiawa Bucharest. The other three were from the internal affairs club, Dinamo Bucharest. From the very first day of the two clubs' existence, a fierce rivalry was born between them that carries on even today. So much for the collective socialist ideal. The two clubs each wanted Joltan racing for them. He'd been national junior time trial champion with his local club, Chibo, raced in Brashov. As he progressed and raced further afield, he met another promising young rider, Josef Naj. As both had Hungarian heritage and were fluent in the language, they shared an instant connection. We worked hard and produced, that's what they say in it, laughs Scholtan. We're sat at the dining table in his family home, looking through the collection of photos from his racing days. There's a shot of Joltan with Josef, he calls him Joe, lined up for a team time trial. He was a good, strong lad. If you had a problem, a fall or a puncture, he'd stay back and you can go with him. You'd have to stay behind him, like you're behind a car or a lorry. He'd heard Naj was going to Stiawa. Decision made, Joltan volunteered for the army a year early so he could join the club and develop his cycling career. They trained us, they fed us, they clothed us, they gave us everything we needed, like parents, says Joltan. After 18 months, they made me a sergeant major, so I was still able to cycle for them. He recalls coming up against Bulgarian, Polish and Russian riders. We had good fights with him on the bike, he says, whilst gently elbowing me, as if he's still jostling for position in the bunch. 
Zoltan and Naj had proved their worth both as racers and reliable characters. Travel was restricted to ordinary citizens, even to other countries behind the Iron Curtain. They had returned from their skirmishes with other Eastern Bloc riders and dutifully gave their passports back to the Cycling Federation every time. We never kept the passport. As soon as you finish the race, you have to hand it back. Those were the rules. They were both selected for the milk race, with Johan Stoika returning to manage the team. Zoltan got on well with Stoika. He was a top man, a good trainer. He knew how to get everything out from you to win. What's good for you, what's not good for you. One of the best. He was always very nice to us, says Zoltan. Stoika also knew a thing or two about competing beyond the Iron Curtain, eloquently describing life in communist Romania. In the 1950s, we had no clue about the Tour de France, the Giro, or any other famous race in the West. We were completely cut off from the capitalist and liberal world, swimming in a red-coloured bubble which was trying to set standards of its own, as if everything that was done until then was useless. Romania had one of the Eastern Bloc's largest secret police forces in proportion to its population. The Securitate had 11,000 agents, along with around half a million informers watching its citizens by the time Nicolae Ceausescu's regime fell in the 1989 revolution. In almost every group of persons, like a team, and even more so a national one, there was at least one member of the Securitate Agency, who snitched further up to the command. It was almost resembling Orwell's 1984, says Stoika. There could be no small talk in such a culture of fear and repression. Joltan recalls having a conversation with a good friend on the plane over to start the race. Hello, Jolly, how are you? What are you doing? You stay in England. Nice country, eh? Even though the friend was a Securitate officer, he had nothing to hide. I said, yes, it's a nice country, but I'm going back. I've got a lot of things to do back home, my friend. He tried to get something out of me, but I was 100% certain about going back. A one-mile time trial up and down Plymouth Seafront opened the race. At least there had been no oncoming traffic to confuse the foreign riders. Bristolian Phil Edwards made the dash a second quicker than Knut Knudsen, ensuring he was in the yellow for the TV news cameras that arrived the following day. But they weren't really here for the race. A sense of Cold War intrigue had captured the mainstream attention as the hunt was on for the two missing Romanian cyclists, dubbed the Freewheelers by the Daily Mirror newspaper. Bill Squance described them to the press as nice-looking lads, dusky and fit-looking, their stocky with short hair, not an army cut, just a clean-looking style. Both riders had gone back to the hotel after the time trial. According to Stoika, Naj had spotted the delegation leader had put all their passports in one suitcase. Taking advantage of the crowded lobby in the hotel, he apparently snatched the key, opened the luggage, and took their two passports. I asked Joltan what was going through his mind at the time. He'd just given his all in the prologue, and now moments later was walking out on the race, his life as a cyclist in the army, and potentially ever being able to return home and see his family. There could be no going back. I said, that's it, and what to do? Where were you going to go? London, to ask for political asylum. Before I met Joltan, I wondered when the plan was hatched to disappear from the race. Maybe when he'd been selected for the team, or after they'd arrived in England. I'm taken aback when he says it wasn't premeditated, that it was a spur-of-the-moment decision for him. So it wasn't in the back of your mind that you were planning to flee when you were riding the time trial. When I got on my bike, I do my best. I give everything. I throw the bike across the line. We got back to the hotel. I go in my room, put my tracksuit on, get my bag. 
and I go. That's it. At the time, he did not intend it would be his last race. A lorry driver called Ian Maguire picked them up hitchhiking. He bought them food on the journey, managing to communicate with a mixture of hand gestures and broken French. He took them back to his local pub, the Black Dog in Hounslow. The pair were national news by the time they arrived. I never forget. We walked in and everyone was, Look! They say on the news anybody's seen them, please report to the police because the KGB are after them. Early the following morning, a Home Office official collected the pair to be interviewed by immigration staff. A minor kerfuffle erupted on the suburban street outside the pub, as Joltan and Naj tried to squash into the official's tiny car, whilst press, TV and drinkers from the pub surrounded the riders. We're looking through a contact sheet of press photos of the scene. Our photographer says they remind him of pop artist Richard Hamilton's Swinging London work, depicting a handcuffed Mick Jagger being driven away from a court appearance on drugs charges. Why were you covering your faces from the cameras? I thought they arrest me. I thought they'd take me away. Because I hardly understand what the people are saying. I look and I see I am frightened there. What have I done? Immigration staff asked him why he left home. I said, I want to cycle here, to become a British citizen and start racing. They said, you'll have to wait for that. Runaway cyclists turn up at a pub, ran the Daily Mirror headline. After a few days, the pair were granted a month's visa to stay in the country, with a paper claiming a victory for the freewheelers. They were befriended by a few cyclists who drank in the pub with Ian, the lorry driver who first took them there. Joltan followed the milk race in the newspapers and found out which hotel Stoika was in. Hearing who was calling, I took the entire team with me in order to avoid suspicion about the subject of our conversation, says Stoika. Alekej apologised on his and Naj's behalf for their act and promised to send back the equipment they received from the National Federation. Stoika asked Joltan to come back home with them. He liked me so much. He said, we go back. There's still your ticket here. That's true. I was in two minds. I nearly said yes. I thought to myself, maybe they'll say, no big problem. Come back and we work something out. They give me a fine, maybe. Suspend me for a year. They'll not let me race straight away again. But he was also worried what the alternative might be. They can't let you leave the country, desert the army, defect the country, and you come back and nothing happened to you. They trained us, they fed us, they clothed us, they gave us everything we needed. They supplied the best of everything, brand new bikes, everything good. And we threw it away. It was very bad. I've got a bad conscience about that. He was worried he'd be shot for being a deserter. I said, no, I'm very sorry. I'm scared. I told him the truth. Never hide nothing. Local police were placed on guard at the Black Dog and the pair were careful never to go anywhere on their own. Meanwhile, Stoika's immediate concern was what he was going to tell the interrogation officer when he returned home minus two of his team. After someone flees like that, your biggest concern was to avoid the unwanted attention of the Securitate and end up in jail. At 20 years old, Joltan thought time was on his side. He felt he could still make it as a cyclist after two or three years, as long as he looked after himself. But the Home Office didn't seem too bothered about processing his application expediently, or acquiring more cycling talent for the country. Whilst Sholtan and Naj were ultimately allowed to stay, British citizenship wasn't forthcoming. I waited five years, and they said, we still can't give it to you. They'd send the form back all the time. They said because you were in the army, maybe they planted you here, he laughs. How can they plant me? You know what I mean, to spy. 
Joltan was told his papers would go to the bottom of the pile if he chased it up again. He pursued it through his local MP and was eventually invited to renounce his Romanian citizenship and given a British passport. They get a newspaper to read, ask me a few questions, swear on the Bible, and that's it. By this time, thoughts of racing had long been replaced with the realities of starting a whole new life in a foreign country and, after a time, raising a family. They had English lessons, paid for by the newspaper, and the landlord of the Black Dog had taken him on as a chef. He'd also go riding at the weekend with his new mates from the pub, maybe a run down to Brighton and back, or a few local time trials. Sometimes I was working in the Black Dog and I get homesick. It hit me now and again. I'd go down to the cellar, out of sight of the customers, have a little cry, wash my face, go back, carry on again. You have to get on. You wanted it? Now do it, boy. Them days was hard. I had a good few years feeling homesick. Sometimes I'd go to sleep and dream I was still in the race. He'd also unwittingly discovered what many British amateurs of the era complained of, that having to work for a living encroached on decent training time, unlike being one of those amateur Eastern Bloc riders who were in essence paid to ride their bikes full-time. Three years passed before he had any contact with his family back home. His letters were opened and checked, but they all got through. Five years passed before he was able to use a neighbour's telephone and call home, pretty sure in the knowledge it was being listened in on. I'd just say, I'm okay, everything's all right, and that's it. A decade after leaving the race, he saw his family for the first time, arranging to meet up in Hungary. Although he'd sought reassurances from the Hungarian embassy he'd be safe to go and come back, it still made him sweat as he nervously handed over his papers to the armed border guard. It was, of course, an emotional reunion. His mother had cried every day since he'd left. His brother, doing his national service in the army at the time, was made to clean the toilets. Although Ceausescu's regime at the time was one of fear and repression, rather than the outright terror of his latter days, it still seems like mild stuff but the Securitate had paid his father a visit. My dad was very strong. He said to them, You took my son away from me. I lost him. What are you going to do to me to ask him to come back? Because who knows what happens afterwards. You put him next to the wall, you shoot him. God knows what punishment he gets. You do anything you like to me. And after that, they left him alone, says Joltan. The Romanian Revolution was in December 1989. It was the only violent revolution to occur as communism fell across Central and Eastern Europe. Nicolae Ceausescu and his wife Elena were executed on Christmas Day after a swift show trial. With second-tier Communist Party leaders assuming control of the country and violent unrest still occurring into the early 1990s, Joltan cautiously waited until he received an official pardon before daring to go back. 23 years after walking out on the milk race, the army and his life in communist Romania, Joltan went back home for the first time in 1995. In the intervening years, his father had died, but he couldn't risk going to his funeral. He sent a friend on his behalf and was heartened to hear it was well attended. Many half expected Joltan himself to turn up. He met up with Johan Stoika again at the tour of Romania. We were so happy to see each other, he gave me a nice cuddle. He never asked me why I left. He just said, I'm very proud of you. You make a nice life over there. All my boys, they're deserving of a nice life and families. All of his boys. That would include Naj. But Joltan had no idea where he could be. 
He asked if Yosef had been back home. The answer was no, nobody had seen him. His parents had passed away and his sister had moved to Hungary. The last time Joltan spoke with him was just after the revolution. He phoned me to see if I'd seen the news, what was happening in Romania. They've shot Ceausescu. That was the last time I heard from him. He finds it unusual he'd just disappear without telling him. Naj would tell him everything, if he'd left a girlfriend, for example. Everyone around here asks me, have you seen Joe? Maybe he's married and changed his name, chips in Joltan's wife, Elena. Perhaps he went home too soon after the revolution. The Securitate lived on until 1991, but would they really have been bothered with the deserting cyclist from 15 years previous? Neither Joltan or Joe were actually given asylum, and they were hardly dissidents, just living out a normal suburban life, enjoying the everyday freedoms taken for granted in the West. At best, Joltan has lost touch with a close friend, someone he grew up with and spent his formative days with in the army, racing bikes, getting towed back to the bunch, drinking down the black dog, sharing a truly life-changing adventure with. He clearly misses him. Maybe the mood took just to up and leave, to vanish, a spur-of-the-moment thing. What would you say to him if he's reading this? If you're still around, give us a call. Looking back through the contact sheet of press photos, one frame catches my attention. One of the men can't resist looking directly at the camera, despite their efforts to hide their faces. It's Joltan. One rider has mysteriously vanished from the milk race all those years ago. You've been listening to No Direction Home by Stephen Green, read by Emma Wright, from issue 18.6 of Ruler magazine. Subscribe at ruler.cc. Now then, here's an infomercial message for the discerning folk of Rulerland. For the finest long-form cycling journalism and exquisite photography and design, why don't you simply subscribe to Rouleur magazine? It costs as little as £7 per month. Regular columnists include Orla Shenwi, Roman Bardet and me, Ned Bolting, accompanied by features from the best writers and photographers in the business. Simply go to rouleur.cc. You know it makes sense. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.